Our second reading is from Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. So I encourage you to open your Bibles at Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, what do you, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, uh, Keith, for reading uh, that passage of scripture for us this morning. Let's pray as we look at God's word. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this, this passage before us with its uh, challenging interpretations and so forth, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word and that you bless the teaching, the sharing of your word, that you would build us in the faith. In the name of Jesus. Amen. My friends, we're going to look at uh, this text uh, this morning, uh, which is uh, Matthew uh, 16, 18 to 20. There are some challenging parts in this text. If you uh, look at it carefully, we hopefully we'll work our way through this, uh, this passage. Well, what do you think of the state of the church in Australia? What do you think of the state of the church in Australia? What about the state of the church in the world? I read some interesting stats about the church. And church attendance in Australia, this is from the McCrindle Research Institute, and the stats uh, dated on the twen- in 2013, I think they're still quite relevant. And did you know that Australia has more churches, 13,000 churches, than schools? 9,500 schools apparently in Australia, but we have 13,000 churches. It is said that more Australians attend a church service each week, 1.8 million, then there are people in South Australia, which is 1.6 million. Any South Australians here? Well, there you go. More people at church than in South Australia, but maybe the population has grown in South Australia in the last few years. Well, the latest census results show that Christianity is the religion which most Australians identify, 61.1%, well above the second most popular religion in Australia, which is by the way, Buddhism. Uh, yes, last night uh, we attended a function. We drove down Springvale Road and we came across this massive, massive Buddhist temple. Uh, I'm sure most of you have seen it. Uh, quite an extensive one, in fact. And so Buddhism is growing in Australia. And less than one in seven of the Australians who take Christianity on their census form regularly attend a church, but there are many in fact, who don't. And here are top six reasons 
why Aussies don't go to church. Alright, so let's have a look at that. 47% say that it is irrelevant for my life. Church is irrelevant. 26% don't accept how it is taught. 24% said it is an outdated style. So in other words, the style of church and everything is outdated. 22% had issues with clergy or ministers. That can't be right. That, that, that is wrong. I think all ministers, we have a few ministers in our, in our church, and I'm sure you agree with me that that's wrong. Anyway, 22% had issues with clergy and ministers. Wow, man. It's a tough gig, isn't it? <laughs> Alright. And 19% don't believe the Bible. And 18% are too busy to attend. 18% are too busy to attend. Well, it might be the case, isn't it? While it is encouraging to know that there are many who attend church, we know sadly a majority has lost connection with the church and with Christianity. It's a given fact. Uh, now the church as an institution is perhaps partly responsible for this. For example, child sexual abuse by church officials, I think, is a major contributing factor for people being skeptical about the church. There is sadly not a day that goes by in recent months, if you're watching the news, without some media reporting on the issue of child sexual abuse. That is a very sad thing. I was in Sydney uh, a couple of weeks ago for General Assembly meetings, and uh, I met uh, briefly with uh, the person responsible for uh, prevention of sexual abuse, child sexual abuse in, uh, in, in the church, in the PCA. And uh, I was quite amazed to see some of the stats and, uh, and, and what's going on. Not, thank the Lord that our church, by God's grace, is a safe place. And we do everything we possibly can at the human level to protect our children. The church... The next thing is perhaps the church has not spoken with one voice on the institution of marriage. So people are confused. Theological liberalism, where some church leaders have taken a liberal view of the Bible and its authority. And these things may perhaps influence people's thinking about Christianity and the church. So for example, I don't connect with the church. It is irrelevant for me. I have problems with ministers. I don't understand this thing called church. So why would I want to attend a place that I actually don't connect? It doesn't make sense. Perhaps relationships have gone sour in the place, and so I don't want to go to church. It's not for me. Surely it is outdated. Now friends, we can get discouraged and despondent when we see the state of the church in our nation and in particular in the Western world. And as we look through the history of the church, there were periods when it looked like the church was going to be no more, with theological controversies and persecution and Christian martyrdom. It seems at times that the church was so marginalized in the history of Christianity that it became almost irrelevant. And so this can be so discouraging at times, for us as Christians, as we see the decline in the church, the decline in church attendance. Well, this morning, as we look at our text, Matthew chapter 16, and this passage, 
I trust that it will encourage us and give us confidence to know that Jesus builds his church. And we have this amazing and profound statement of Jesus in the text here. I will build my church. Wow! What a powerful and profound statement. And so last Sunday we looked at Matthew chapter 16, uh, the, 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 the verses before this passage. And we saw Jesus asking his disciples what the opinion of the people were regarding himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they responded with four opinions. We're not going to go through all of that this morning. Having heard the wrong opinions of the general popula- population, Jesus now wanted to hear what the disciples had to say. And so he asked them this personal question, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's response was this, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We saw that last week. Here were ten words of a profession of faith or confession. It was decisive and it was emphatic. You see, it is one thing to be able to profess a faith. But it is another thing to actually, you know what I'm looking for? To possess it. Right? It is one thing to be able to stand up and say things, but it is another thing to actually possess it and to be actually saying, yes, this faith is my faith. This is my profession. This is coming from my heart. This is because what God has done in me. And that's why I profess Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. And so Peter comes up with that profession. The Christ, the Son, the God, the living God, the living one. And so we, we looked at that last week. And today we're going to look at this text on the two points, the promise and the protection. We're going to work through this passage. Uh, let's, uh, let's keep our Bibles open, please, uh, to Matthew chapter 16. I, and uh, in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, Peter had another uh, uh, double name, Simon, or you could call Simon Peter. Peter means in the Greek, Petros. Petros means rock. So that's what uh, any, anyone by the name of Peter here this morning, that means you are a, a rock. How's that, eh? A rock. And that's what Peter's name means. And in 18a, now if you look at your Bibles, 18a is one of the most controversial passages, one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, as I will point out in a moment. And interpretations vary among scholars. And there are different views, even amongst reformed scholars here. So where do we go with this? Eh? Let me give you just three views quickly. I know some of you are smiling, waiting to think, what is this guy going to say? <laughs> right? And especially those who have looked at this passage and preached on it, perhaps. Well, three views. Peter is the rock. That is, the text is, uh, this text is one that the Roman Catholic Church appeals to support its position that the church must be built by the successor to Peter. That is, the Pope. And this would mean that Peter is the first Pope. And therefore, this verse is used by the Roman Catholic Church to justify what we might call papal succession. 
Now, if you've been to Rome, and some of you have, and you've been to St. Peter's Basilica, and you read the history there, you would see that Peter is given a very prominent place in the church, and that's why it's called St. Peter's Basilica, because Peter is believed to be the one, and from there onwards, the Pope that comes after that. So there is this papal succession. This is the rock. And so everyone appointed is a, is a Pope after this, who is the head of the church. That's one view. We don't agree with it, obviously. This is not the case, because if you look at Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 16, 23, we read this, where Jesus had to rebuke Peter. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter did not want Jesus to go to the cross. And so Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Now, would that fit into a context of the Pope? So, we don't accept that. Then the second interpretation is this, that Peter's confession uh, is the rock. That is, uh, this view is that Peter's confession in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the one that Jesus builds his church upon this confession. And then, Peter is the rock. The third one view uh, interpretation is this, that is, Peter is the rock, as the representative apostle, and hence is a foundation in the church. Okay, I'll say that again. Peter is the rock, as the representative apostle, and hence is a foundation in the church. And so in the New Testament, we see that Jesus sees his apostles. I think, and I believe, as I look at this passage, try to work this thing out, and there might be different views, different views here on this matter, uh, that that in the New Testament we see that Jesus sees his apostles as part of his church. That is, he is building on the apostles as the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. We see this, for example, in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What is it? built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, the, the most important stone in the building. Now, I'm not a civil engineer here, but there are, there are our church is filled with engineers, right? Oh, quite a few engineers. There might be civil engineers here this morning. And, and the cornerstone, apparently, is the most important one in terms of laying the foundation. Am I right? I see some of you nodding, so that's good. Right. And, and, and that holds the, the, the entire building. And Jesus here is the cornerstone. And, and, and the apostles uh, is the foundation of the apostles. So the church is built on this, on this teaching, as it were. And I'll explain that in a moment. He builds his church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets as a group, with Jesus as the cornerstone. And Peter, the apostle, played a key role in the New Testament church. And Jesus is going to use Simon Peter to build a church, and we see this tremendously taking place in the book of Acts. When Peter, Peter, the fisherman, Peter, the guy who had foot and mouth disease, Peter would always come out and speak his mind, goes and he sees and he knows the resurrected Jesus. And he preaches on the day of Pentecost one of the most amazing sermons. Any preacher's dream. 
How many people came to faith in Christ after he preached it? Huh? 3,000. I mean, wow, imagine that. There are 5,000 people, you got forget, five people come to faith in Christ after a sermon. We'll be rejoicing. In fact, there is rejoicing in heaven when one person turns to Jesus. But what about this guy? He preaches. He preaches one of the greatest amazing sermons, anointed by the Spirit of God, and, and Jesus uses this man, Peter, and 3,000 people come to faith. And we read in Acts chapter uh, 4 this morning, how many were there who came to faith as well? Did you read that? Did you see that? How many men? Was it 5,000? You see, Peter has been used here. This rock, this Petra, this Petros, Peter, the apostle, is now being used by Jesus. You see, he preached this sermon. And uh, we, we, we looked at Acts chapter uh, 4 this morning, 11 and 12. Uh, and Peter continues on and he says, this, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, friends, and we are to build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, remembering that Jesus is the cornerstone. So, how does this work out in practice, you might ask me? To be an apostolic church, what does it look like? To be a church that is faithful to the teaching of God's word. A church can be built on the apostles' foundation. I'll say this clearly again. A church can be built on the apostles' foundation only if it loves what the apostles loved and affirms what the apostles affirmed. And what did the apostles affirm? What did the apostles love? What did they affirm? They affirmed, and Peter, the representative of those guys, said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The apostles affirmed the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament. The apostles affirmed the fundamentals of the faith. And when we do uh, communion here, what do we do? We, we say the Apostles' Creed, don't we? We've been saying the Nicene Creed, Nicene Creed as well. I mean, we interchange it. And it's an apostolic faith fundamentally saying that we believe and we affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, the Savior, the Word of God given to us. They affirm the Scriptures. And therefore the church must be grounded. It must be grounded on this word. Correct? Do you agree? Do I hear a yes? Do I hear a stronger yes? That's good. That's good. You're with me. This is not like an auction, okay? So, <laughs> uh, you see, this is what it is. It's affirming the scriptures. It's affirming the word. You know, on Friday morning in our growth group, we have a, fun, we have a great growth group on Friday mornings. Uh, by the way, the next two weeks, Reverend Jeff Milton will be doing uh, my growth group on Friday mornings. But we talk about sermons and uh, the ladies in the group, they always say things about uh, what the sermon was and etc. Et I said to them, well, this Sunday is going to be different. I'm just going to come up and give you a five minute story of what happened during the week. How would that be? Someone said you might get tomatoes and eggs thrown at you might happen. You see, 
we, whoever mounts this pulpit, whether myself, we are so blessed with people here to preach God's word. We thank God for them. It is John, our other minister, our second minister in our congregation. Whoever mounts this pulpit, we want them to exposit the word of God. Because this word is, what, is the word that will go deep into our souls. This is the word of God that will give you strength and energy and bring you to faith in Jesus and revive you and renew you to a living relationship with God. That's what it does. I will build my church, Jesus says. Notice, it is not you will build my church. Yesterday, Rose and myself, we went for a 60th party, a birthday party to Nurat. Uh, it was a nice time together for, uh, for both the two of us, captive in the car, the, yo- the young couple together. It's okay. Very romantic driving to uh, Nurat and back. Uh, but anyway, we went, we, we went there and we had a great time. I visited our church, well, the church that we were part of in Nurat. And we went, the building was still there, and we met the people. And uh, I was so encouraged to see these people. They asked me, Chris, what's happening at Surrey Hills? And I explained to them what God is doing. And they said, well, we want to pray that God will do great things here. And I said to this brother, this elder, wonderful man of God, a faithful elder in Christ, been in the church for so many years. I said to him, tomorrow I'm preaching on a text. Go home and read it. Matthew chapter 16. And know that Jesus builds his church. He will build his church. It's not pastors or church leaders will build his church. We can't do that. Or Peter will build his church. But Jesus says, I will build my church. And notice the one who makes this promise. I, that is Jesus. It is kind of easy in this context to skim over that little letter there, I. But I don't want to do that this morning. Given the context of what has been said, the I is really important. That is Jesus, who is the great I am God. He's speaking here. He is God. He's the faithful one. He keeps his word. He does not change. As the book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And he's the all-powerful, the all-sufficient Savior who builds his church. I will build my church. You see, the church there is the word ecclesia, which means the called out ones. It refers to an assembly of people. And in the Gospels, the word church is interestingly, Jesus speaks about the church. I mean, we see the Gospels twice in Matthew here and in Matthew eighteen seventeen. And so, the church is the, is central to the heart of Jesus. And as we know, the church is not a building, is it? Is 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 this the church? It's a building, right? The church is... Who is the church? It's us. We can even meet in the car park and sing out. That would be great, wouldn't it? All the people driving past, you see, the church has gathered in the car park. It's unseen, unique. You see, the church is God's people, whether here or overseas, wherever it might be, it is God's people. And Jesus says, I will build my church. You see, it belongs to him. He's the owner. And how does he do this? Why does he say it is my church? Well, look at this text. Again, Peter. Peter. What does it say? Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. How? How is it? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the Precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish. You see, friends, 
The gospel is about Jesus dying on the cross. Given his life to show us his love. Pour out his grace to an undeserving people. And he draws the people with his precious blood. And he calls them his church. How's that? See, he gave his life. He says, I will build my church. What a blessing. So you might ask me, the question might be this morning, uh, how does he build this church then? How does he do it? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you some ways, alright? Very quick practical ways. Well, some, some, some ways. Well, he builds his church by calling and redeeming the people unto himself from every tribe, language and nation. Correct? In, in, in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, you can see that. He builds his church by blessing the church with gifts. Ephesians chapter 4. He gave apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip God's to equip the saints for work of ministry. He builds the church by pouring out His Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He builds His church by promising His power, His presence with His church as He goes out and does gospel work. Matthew chapter 28. What is the Great Commission? Go out into all the world, right? Make disciples. And lo, I am with you. All authority is given to me. Because he is there. He builds the church by protecting the church. He builds the church and he redeems it. And so this morning, I want us to remember this morning. When Jesus says, you are my church. That means you have trusted in Christ as your savior. And you know Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning. Forget about the institution called church. Which may have turned you aside. Forget about ministers whom you got problems with. 22%. Or people apparently have problems with. Forget about the styles and everything of worship. And you, you can't agree with the color of the carpet or the whatever it is. Or the songs we sing or whatever. I want to ask you one question this morning. How is it with Jesus? Have you lost your connection with Jesus? That's the thing, isn't it? And when you know this Jesus then your church will become very much part of you. Because I know it, friends. I went and sat in church in the back pew, not, not here, but back home in Sri Lanka. I was always going to sit in the back pew. My parents would go and sit somewhere in the front. I thought, good on you, mom and dad. I'll be in the back. I'll be with my young friends. Actually, I had a 50th party yesterday with friends from Sri Lanka. It was a magnificent, magnificent night. But anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, I sat with these blokes in the back. And I saw them yesterday and we had a... Great time, but it doesn't matter. The point is, I just sit there. I just fold my hands, listen to the minister, and just go home. Never bothered to come sometimes, because cricket, I love cricket. It was my sport, it was my God. I played cricket Saturday, Sunday, every weekend. The point is, when I was converted, suddenly, suddenly the church became so much part of my life. That's the difference. You see, you can sit in a church and not have a relationship with God. You can sit in a church and say, okay, this church has got problem A, problem B, problem C, problem D. The minister is boring. It might be boring. Okay, ministers can be like that as well. And we got to take, we, we guys got to acknowledge sometimes how we serve God's people. But you see, the point is, 
You're talking about a relationship with God. It's my church. It's my people. You see, God embraces you in His love. He takes us from nowhere and He gives us a new life. And He cares for you. And He loves you. And in the midst of all your trials and all your testings, to know that this Jesus has given His love love for you. And He calls you my people. My son. My daughter. My precious one. My blood was shed for you. Come. Come to me. That's the blessing. And now we see the protection. Leads us quickly to this point here. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why would Jesus say this? You see, because his church will face conflict in this world. We know that this conflict began in Genesis chapter 3.15. I was working through this passage, looked at Genesis 3.15 to see where the, the traction of this conflict was coming. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his seal. See that? Right there in Genesis we see a conflict, don't we? Two people, God's people and those who are not. And so that conflict intensifies. There is enmity. Rightly we see conflict stated and there is enmity. And this conflict is played out in the Old Testament. It is played out in the New Testament church. And there is persecution. One has to look at church history to see the level of persecution the church faced. Enemies will rise and try to destroy the church. Opposition will come against the church. The church faces constant spiritual warfare. Sometimes the warfare is from outside. Other times it's from within. You know, outside ones you think, wow, man, I can't kind of handle that thing by God's power. But when the warfare is starting from within, that's a pain. It's a challenge. And it's destructive. You see, the gates of hell, Jesus says here, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the word used for hell or is the word Hades here. It does not have the same connotation as hell in the Greek. Hades is the, is the Greek word for the underworld, as it were, and means death. It means the grave. And this would mean then, I, I'm taking it this way, this would mean then that there isn't any gate that's going to lock up the church, not even death. That is death, whether it in, in its natural form or even in times of mass persecution, will not be able to destroy the church that Jesus is building. And history is a testimony of this. Think of Emperor Nero. His persecution of the Christians in AD 67, where he sought to destroy Christianity. I was reading on Nero this past week. Shocking things. Um, now there are children here, so I won't mention some of the stuff that Nero did to Christians. Shocking. And he persecuted and made Christians a public spectacle. Emperor Nero. And he thought that by destroying Christianity, by destroying these Christians, that Christianity would be wiped out. And what is happening in parts of Syria and in Iraq and in other parts of the Middle East, it is a wiping out, we think, don't we, of Christians being persecuted, being killed, being murdered, to wipe out every trace of Christianity. Churches being bombed and, and, and brought to dust. To wipe out every remembrance of Christianity. It's happening now, right? But you can never, my dear friends, write off the church. Because behind this stands Jesus. I will build my church and the powers, the gates of hell will not prevail upon it. And then, 1920, so look at this passage. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
and whatever you bind on earth. Look at 1920, again, lots of interpretations here, very quickly. The keys of the kingdom of heaven, I think I was looking at the Heidelberg Catechism, are the preaching of the gospel and Christian discipline to repentance. I believe that the keys is a reference here to preaching of the gospel. Keys are used to open and close doors. I don't know about you, but I sometimes lose my keys. Have you lost keys? You lost your car key and you think, where have I kept my keys, man? And you go around the house.